and welcome to the latest edition of the Digital CXO Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Bizarre, and my guest today is Mitch Ashley, CTO for TechStrong Group, publisher of DevOps.com, Security Boulevard, Container Journal, and of course, Digital CXO. Mitch is also a principal analyst for TechStrong Research Group. Mitch, welcome to the show. Good to be talking with you, Mike. Let's talk about what's going on with digital business and security. I feel like maybe there's more awareness of it, but if I look around, there seems to be also the traditional let's chase after something after it's been deployed and the security people are playing catch up. And part of the question is flat out is, are we building applications too fast in a way that we can't secure them. So maybe we are having some sort of Ralph Nader moment where we're unsafe at any speed. I love the Ralph Nader analogy. You know, we, we've been in this perpetual um, being behind mode, always chasing, whether it's quality of software or security of software has been behind the, uh, oh yeah, we created this new technology. It's called the cloud, called containers, called Kubernetes, called whatever. And we think about security. It isn't quite that laggard, but you know, that's the history. I think there's much more awareness now in the security camp of we're not just protecting the network and the stuff that runs over it. We actually need to protect the stuff itself, like the software. And so security organizations, individuals are getting more involved through DevOps and DevSecOps and app security and API security. Those are all now on the on the topic list, at least for security professionals, that's not going to solve the problem. I mean, that's the start. So I I think we're always going to be in this mode of business wants to move faster. Business wants to move into a new market, new product, new, whatever my competitor shows up, et cetera. And so we're constantly going to be applying technology to how do we create new apps? And I think we need to get into an environment where, you know, we think of apps as kind of pop-up apps, not as let's build this massive infrastructure, even if it's in the cloud, to be able to respond to the business need. Easy to say, not easy to do, but I don't think the problem's going away, just like we have credit card numbers stolen years and years and years and years after the first ones were, were lifted off of some server somewhere. And I think we're always going to be talking about application security. Do you think we can shift application security left to developers or will they say we want to be focused on features and building the apps and they're never going to be security experts. So how do we kind of get them or maybe get the applications more secure in a way that we lean left, but maybe we don't shift left. What's the, what is the nuance there? Well, the, the evidence is you look at the OWASP top 10 Many of those uh, those problems are the same ones we've had exactly two, three, four, five years ago. They're not different, you know, whether it's cross-site scripting or SQL injection, et cetera. I think for us to put the burden on developers to be, uh, let's you, have you be ops, let's have you be QA, now let's have you be security experts, not realistic. Now, can we inject into how we design software, how we create software tools we used to do it? looking for security issues earlier, you know, design quality in sort of that old mantra. Yes, I think that's what realistically what it means. It's not, let's ask, you know, what are we going to ask developers to do next, right? (laughs) So I don't think it's realistic to say they're going to solve the problem. I think we have to look at how we systemically build that into how we create software. What will be the role of security people then? Because most of them are not developers, 
Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, their role has always been, I discovered a vulnerability and I sent it to you in a spreadsheet and the developer looks at them and says, you realize I have 30 other things to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we kind of bridge that divide? Well, I, I, I agree. I mean, at one point, I think not too long ago, I said, you know, best thing that security people can do is go learn software architecture. You don't need to be a developer, but at least know something about it. And while that's probably still true, I think it's more working with just like they would at any part of the business of saying, okay, let's talk about security and how you're embedding that into your tool chain or your workflow pipeline or um, where are we discovering problems in the software process and do you need help with tools? Are you finding the things that you need to, to solve that? So I think it's more about security people getting involved in the software creation process and how we're doing it, not telling developers how to write secure code because security people don't know how to do that either. They know what the, the vulnerabilities are. I mean, we're going to, even in, in that kind of approach, a lot of the security technology and software creation is still about scanning source code, scanning test environments, doing those kinds of things like we would in a production environment, <laughs> you know, looking for vulnerabilities. And that's part of it, but I think we have to more proactively look at are we writing code that avoids security issues in the first place and isn't just having a vulnerability. So, so a good example of what I mean by this, Mike, is when we talk about API security, it's easy to talk about security of APIs for, for services that we use on the net but we don't talk about API security of our own apps. That's where all the APIs are being created, uh, you know, in, in cloud native kind of applications. So I don't have a lot of great answers for, you know, the solutions on the horizon, but I think the best solution is getting people to work together and not getting rid of the handoffs and the after effect of let's go check it after it's done. How do we help people during the creation process? Do you think there's going to be some backlash coming from the business side who are investing heavily in these digital business initiatives and may not always understand the subtle nuances that exist and the conflicts that exist between developers, security people, and IT people, and may just decide with one brush that, you know what, <clears throat> all you guys are getting in the way of the goal here, so maybe they'll look for some other approach or force an issue? They absolutely will. They do that today. They're going to do that tomorrow. They did that last week. <laughs> right? I mean, the business has got something that's got to get done. And people, of course, are hugely important, are, are the solution for how you get those kind of things done. Um, I think it's more about the technologists being sort of stuck in our ways, whether it's viewing security as the protector from those bad developers. That's a model that's not going to get you software very quickly uh, to being, you know, we don't need to worry about security. We'll scan code when we get it into test or production. You have to drop those kind of historical bad habits and silos and get people to work together. And you have to be able to respond at the pace the business needs you to. And if you can't, it's either process people or technology, right? So it's in somewhere in those, in those changes is how you make that transition to be able to respond to what the business is asking. So it's going to ask for stuff. We're going to ask for software faster. Um, I think we can do that in smaller chunks than we could three or four or five years ago. So that's positive. We're automating more of the software creation environment and testing and things like that. That's a positive 
But I think we'll reach a point where that's not enough either. We still have to look for new ways how we create software more effectively. All right. Well, it feels like maybe the IT side is running out of time to innovate and there's going to be a lot more pressure coming, but we'll see where we go. But I don't think it's going to stop. Yeah. Speaking of things that where we're stuck in our ways kind of mindset, <laughs> let's talk about this shift to real time and batch oriented processing. And if I look around, we've been doing batch oriented processing since you know time began. And the part of this thing that people don't always appreciate is that means that applications are kind of out of sync, usually as much as 12 hours or 24 hours when we're waiting for updates. And yet we're living in this world where the digital processes are supposed to be happening in real time. And we want to be able to process and analyze data at the point where it's being created and consumed. And we do see things like these Apache Kafka projects and a few other things mm-hmm. that are driving that. But do you think we are on some fundamental shift here where we're moving away from these legacy batch-oriented mindsets to something that feels more like near real-time? Well, we're kind of a victim of our own success, right? We want everything when we want it right now in that moment. And that's what our customers expect. Um, And I think the problem, just to sort of use a mental model, is we still think of systems and data and software as something as a point in time, that this is what it looks like right now. I don't delivered this release, so this is what my software looks like. Database is sitting here, has this content in it, but it's being updated, but it's sort of this relatively static thing. And the problem is we need to rethink it as it's all fluid, it's all dynamic, it's all changing all the time. And if you think of it that way, you don't think of, a, okay, I fixed it, now I can go on to other things. You're thinking of it, it's constantly changing. So how do I know when something's changed and we need to react to it, or we can automate the reaction to it. Um, so, I, you know, it's not going to get easier. I mean, the mobile traffic over the the web, you know, websites is over 50%. I think it was estimated last year. We kind of cross that horizon, and that's going to keep going up. And, you know, there's sort of the 5G mantra. Uh, I think it's a bit oversold, but, <laughs> you know, and that's going to have everything connected all the time as well at least where you have 5G, that might be true. So I think we're going to have to rethink how we sort of build our infrastructure. Instead of building it, it's continually reinventing it as it's that's as you're flying the plane, not build at once. I think where some of the confusion and maybe frustration is digital business execs, and for that matter, the end user thinks that if they go on some mobile app or website and it says that, you know, X product is available at Y store that's six miles away from me. And then they drive over there only to find out that it hasn't been there for 24 hours because it was sold yesterday, but the systems weren't updated. People start to think that maybe, you know, all this digital business transformation stuff, just a bunch of hooey. Well, it's, there's also sort of a facade to it. I mean, if you think about, I'm going to order something online is it really sitting in someone's warehouse right now? Or is it, yes, it's sitting in someone's warehouse, just not mine, but I can get it to you tomorrow, however I get it to you. So that, that's what I mean by kind of rethinking of it, not a literal in my supply chain and my warehouses, um, but I've got options of how I can deliver it. I mean, we see this already today. I'm surprised at the number of things you can order and get it today from service like Amazon, like an Apple store, like whoever. And we're just starting to do that. Um, 
you know, where it comes from, if you kind of watch the tracking of whether it's B2B or B2C goods and services, it's not one path. It's a path that's created in the moment that product is ordered from a customer. So it's a much more fluid thing. Now, is that going to jade everybody's experience because you can't get anything at any time at any time of the day or whatever? Maybe, but I also think somebody, people are going to solve that problem. And people, some companies are going to be effective at it. And that's, that's partially who will determine the winners are. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Organizations and people will just buy things based on availability. And that may be, yeah, I expect it here today or tomorrow at the latest. And if your supply chain is so weak that you can't respond and your thing is stuck on a container ship somewhere in the port of Los Angeles, it can't be my problem. Mm -hmm. Well, exactly. And that's, that's getting out of the linear mindset of this is what my supply chain looks like to sort of a, a neural network of supply chain that's created as at the moment, maybe while it's still in shipping. Um, we kind of do that ourselves as consumers, you know, with the, with the pandemic and the sh supply shortage on monitors and computers and goods in the stores. And we're constantly looking for, well, if I can't get it there or if I can't get that product, I'll go somewhere else and get it online, different options and person stores, all that. And, and I, you, I don't know if we're going to go back to a world where everything is always available at the grocery store or everything's always available on the sites that I go to that we'll have to kind of dynamically adjust what we're looking for as well as how it gets to us. Well, I don't know. Maybe the term supply chain needs to give way to the supply matrix, but then I wouldn't know which pill to take to have the right experience, right? I think that's the next uh, Keanu Reeves movie, right? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to move on, though, to, I know, a thing that you've been tracking, and there was this whole uh, conversation around the possible merger of Splunk and Cisco. And while that's interesting, given the size, I wanted to poke a little bit deeper on it and say, do you think that as we kind of move down this path towards these digital business transformation initiatives, that it, in, to a degree... They're going to force mergers like this because the end customer is sitting there going, I don't want to stitch all this stuff together anymore. I want one vendor or a handful of vendors to give me some sort of end-to-end -end experience. And whether it's Cisco or IBM or Oracle or whatever, they're going to be forced to go buy uh, more products and services to create that experience. Mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, I agree with you. I think that's one of the drivers. Another driver is, you know, all the technology suppliers, whether it's VMware or Cisco or Dell or whoever, their business is changing too right out from under them. And just like the network's gone all software, well, as things go all software, guess what? Observability and tracing and all this, all these approaches to how we understand what's going on has elevated the role of, of operations. You don't hear us talk about operations, you hear us talk about observability, um, things like that. And so I think that's a recognition, you know, talking about, you know, possible slunk, slunk acquisition is almost a recognition that you know, having that operational capability as a technology supplier is is a now a, a price to play. Is it's a prerequisite? You need that if you're going to be a software company, and that's what you're supplying to your customers. the The issue is you can't go off and specialize. 
and create your own version of every one of those things. And what I mean by that is, I don't, I don't think we've seen great success by every, every person in their brother, their dog, whatever, going and creating their own variant of Kubernetes. I mean, a lot of technology suppliers have that, and I'm sure people are buying it, but you know, and now, now all we do is it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, uh, when you split the, the uh, source tree on code, and now you get all these variants of different changes. And well, I need your Kubernetes version versus mine. No, what I need is an observability platform that I can use for your products, but all my other products too. And if you're the right company to get it from, I'll get it from you. But if I can't get it from Cisco, I'll get it or Splunk. I'll get it from Sumo or the next, you know, the next company. So I think that's a recognition that just like IBM and everybody else, Cisco has to have that capability to continue to play the game. I think part of this is also that the cost of switching out one provider for another has been dropping. Things are becoming more microservices or whatever it's going to be, but I'm not as locked in as I used to be as a customer. And then I'm curious about that because we've been talking about the divide between IT and business for as long as anybody can remember. (laughs) But... (laughs) I wonder, you know, the business always said IT was slow and couldn't respond to the needs of the business. And as we move along here and I look at where IT is headed, increasingly IT leveraging DevOps and Agile and all these other things may be approaching a point where it's faster than the business can absorb. And I wonder if the business will start absorbing some of the DevOps principles to run the organization that IT organizations use to manage the infrastructure. Well, I, you know, I think you're right on. Agile, it's a great example, right? We talked about agile business or lean businesses. You know, those kind of techniques that we've taken from software or from manufacturing and applied to software. Now it's being applied to other disciplines. You also see all the variants of the uses of the term DevOps, asterisk ops, right? Whatever it is, AI ops, biz ops, fin ops, all that stuff. And I think that's a recognition that there's some value of of moving away from the highly structured to the more fluid approaches to how work and gets done and how people work together. Whether IT ever gets ahead of the business, I think maybe traditional IT, no, but, but IT is something that happens across the organization. Yes. And what I mean by that is we don't, we don't live in a world where IT does all the technology. I mean, we're way past that. Every every business executive, to some degree, has to be a technology executive. I'm not saying a technologist, but has to be savvy about how they use technology in their business. It's not just a back office function anymore. And all that IT stuff is not just happening in IT. It's happening in the business units. It's happening in the product groups. It's happening, um, you know, it used to be spreadsheets and finance, right? Now it's everybody's kind of creating their own low-code, no-code app, whatever it is. And you also see sort of the, the, the back channel happening where IT, I think the savvy IT organizations are adopting what's happening everywhere in the organization. Instead of rejecting Dropbox, like we all, you know, it's sort of a norm today, but we used to think you know, we don't want that shadow IT anymore. Now, our IT organizations are adopting low-code, no-code that the business units are doing, apps that they're creating, because they know that at a certain point, you have to get to security, you have to get to data, you have to get to other apps. 
And not every group is equipped to do that on their own. Some of those things are back in IT. And I think that's what elevates IT into the game of really providing what the business needs, not performing a function the business needs. Do you think that maybe in at the college level, we need to have more computer science graduates take a few courses in business and vice versa? People who are studying business courses need to take a few computer science courses to understand what goes on. Because to your point, the two are so intertwined. I don't see how you're going to succeed without having some understanding of both. As a double major in computer science and business administration, yes, I think <laughs> I do think it's required. I was fortunate, but I was lucky to do that. But you know, where this especially comes up, we talk about people advancing in their roles up into higher, you know, higher levels in the organization, like a CISO. The people who are effective at that aren't just great security people. They've got to be able to speak and translate, not scare people. Um, with with security and talk business language and understand the business that you're in. So, yeah, I, whether you get it in an education environment or, um, you know, I worked with an executive assistant who said, my, my job is here to learn the business. I want to know what we do so then I know how to help you. Same thing if you're in a software developer role or a tester or, you know, any other job in a company. I think what you know about the business helps you be smarter about how to work in and work on the business. Yeah. I talked to one guy and he said, my whole life on the business side and all business executives have the same mindset. It's all about management of risk. Security is just one other thing. And he was kind of laughing. He said, yeah, if my security people had been around when the phone was invented, they would have told me not to use it because, you know, some information might leak out <laughs> <laughs> yeah what was the super the the larry what's his name the super bowl commercial of like they bring in the wheel nah that'll never work <laughs> they bring in the sign the constitution you mean they let dummies vote nah that'll never work it's sort of you can't be that land of no anymore um or you're going to get a smaller smaller shrinking world as technology people same thing, same thing in the business, right? If you can't get it done, I'll find somebody else to do it. That's, that's kind of the business attitude. When, you, when you're you know, fighting to win, you're fighting to, to, to stay relevant, whatever it is. Uh, well, it's always the bad stuff that makes the headlines. But truly, I do feel we are making more progress than people kind of realize. So do you think oh. we're going to wake up one morning in a couple of years from now and just say, hey, you know, Maybe there was this moment in time where we all got it, but right now everybody's kind of involved in digital business and through osmosis, they're going to figure it out. I, I think sort of a variant of that, Mike, I, I think we're going to wake up and say, you know, a lot of things happened and bad things in 2021, 20, uh, 20 and 21, but a lot of things really changed. That was sort of the nexus point where, we didn't have any options. A lot of things had to happen, moving to the cloud, digital transformation, creating more digital experiences, you know, supply chains get obliterated, have to be rebuilt, but rebuilt in new ways. I think we're going to look back and say that kind of like we do the mortgage crisis of 2008 and here's all the consequences of it. I think we're going to look at this, this past two or three years, maybe the this in a couple of years going forward is where we really started to rethink and we also accelerated the amount of progress we made towards creating more competitive business through competitive technologies. 
All right. Here's hoping for the best as we all remain optimistic, right? All right. Mitch, thanks for being on the show. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Enjoyed very much. And thanks for folks who are listening. I appreciate that. And thank you all for listening to our show. You can check out other episodes on the Digital CXO website, as well as find the show notes with links to stories we discussed today. You can also follow us on your favorite social media platform and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. We'll see you all next time.